Hi everybody, it's Rabbi Hannah back with episode 11 of the Hill Chavaradcast. And today I'm talking to Hill Chavarad member Jonathan Make. He is a journalist who covers the media, the media industry. He reported for Bloomberg News and is now executive editor of Communications Daily. But given the recent protests and the emotional political climate we live in right now, what I really wanted to talk with him about right now was how journalists are supposed to stay neutral when there are so many issues that you can't not feel passionate about, right? How does he go through life not publicly expressing anything looking like a political opinion? How does he do that? We have to remain objective uh, and we have to remain kind of professionally neutral. That doesn't mean that we might not have personal views but those personal views have to be private views. You know, when you're a journalist, um, I think you kind of give up some rights that other Americans have. Um, so I watch protests uh, frequently and I uh, love social media. And so I will, you know, publicize those on social media if I'm there. Uh, but I, you know, I could never participate in a, in a protest. Kind of the same thing when it comes to politics, I love politics. Or in, in terms of watching it, but I can't participate in the political process. I can't run for office. I can't donate to a candidate, all that, all that sort of thing. All I can do is simply vote and vote privately. And there's a lot of journalists, including my wife, um, who's working downstairs um, you know, in our house, who, who don't even uh, uh, register to be a member of a political party or don't even vote for that same reason. So we want to make sure wow. that people can trust what we're doing. Wait, I didn't know that. I didn't First of all, I didn't know that you couldn't just personally give money to a political candidate. And I didn't know that some journalists, like, I didn't know Courtney like, like, doesn't vote because of that. Could you say more about, about why you couldn't just privately be political as a journalist? Sure. Um, and, you know, I, just to, yeah, my wife does vote. She just doesn't register to be a member of a political party. And, Got you know, so she can as vote, you might- not in primary. That's exactly right. Right. She she's kind of excluded here in D.C. from large parts of the of the political process and would be in other um, areas, mostly big cities that are you know tilt to one party. Um, okay. But yeah, no, we, we don't participate. Not just we, our profession. We don't participate in that process because we don't want to do anything that gives people the misimpression that we're on one side or another in terms right. of our private views. Um, that is really expressing them one-on-one. -on -one. one thing, you know, we have certain standards in our newsroom and, and all newsrooms do. And, you know, one thing we say is no matter the situation, uh, you should expect that what you say could be public or is public. There really is no private except for, you know, if you, Rabbi Hannah or Jess, who's helping tape this podcast, if we're talking on the phone or if the three of us are gathered, you know, okay, outdoors in the park, 10, each of us 10 feet apart. Yeah, maybe some people would express their political views, but they're, they're really not to be made um, you know, public. And as a result, I think a lot of journalists don't do a lot of thinking about their personal views you know, I, I, on the things they're covering. I do a lot of thinking about strategizing and how we can cover them and, and you know, kind of handicapping, like what sort of rule might come to fruition because of you know, who's in political office and the you know regulatory appointments they're making and such, but as I said, it's it's so much about you know perception. We don't want people to 
read um, anything we're saying or, or read, read anything into what we're saying and to think that we're biased. You know, we're selling our material. All journalists are selling their material in, in one way or another, right? There's subscribers, there's advertisers, things like that. And so for what we do, that's going to become less valuable if people think I'm expressing an opinion versus finding out the best version of the truth I can and reporting it as best I can. Sure. I just don't understand how it's possible. Like for me, when I open up Twitter or Facebook and I see images of what's going on, like, and like I, I like start to cry sometimes, you know? And like, and it's so, I mean, I already feel like I have to exhibit a degree of restraint um, just because I'm the rabbi of a community and I don't want to completely alienate any of my congregants and feel like they're left without a rabbi. But even that is so hard. I just, how do you do it? Are you ever tempted to just be like, screw it and like start sharing what you believe? No, for me, uh, it's funny. I uh, um, and others, including those who I directly work with, some of us kind of say, (laughs) well, even if we did say I even thought about my views and, you know, wanted to publicize them and whatnot, how is that really going to influence the, not just political process? Remember, we're reporting on business malfeasance, uh, ethical scandals, you know, all that, all that sort of thing. If we contribute our opinion, it's just another drop in the bucket, right? So you're as like tempt, emotionally tempting as it can be. You can do more good if you engage in restraint and just share facts. Yeah, and again, a lot of our readers, they have all sorts of different, right, political, personal views, and they can judge for themselves, okay, well, as a, um, you know, Republican or as someone, you know, someone could be a Democrat, right, but they could be a free market Democrat. There's all sorts of, it's not just political left or right. There tend to be all these, you know, interesting combinations, right? When did you realize you wanted to be a journalist and like did you realize at that point that you would be giving up your right to speak freely or was that like a gradual realization yeah that's a that's a great question i think i'm so inculcated with you know best practices professional standards for journalism that um it didn't really occur to me but perhaps it did happen gradually that's the only profession i've ever been in you know i started as a professional journalist in high school you know where i grew up for the local newspaper so that's kind of all i've ever done hopefully it's all i'll ever do and you know one thing i just want to throw out there is a lot of the kind of newsroom and journalist ethics they're not necessarily so different from ethics of Judaism, right? A lot of that is like, do no harm. Um, like if, if we make an error, I get stuff wrong all the time. <laughs> um, if I make an error, you know, you want to correct it with alacrity and with prominence. You know, well, maybe that goes to tikkun alam and, you know, trying to repair the world and, and to repair, you know, your errors. Um, you think about what's the right thing to do. Maybe that's not always clear. But what's the right thing to do as a Jew? What's the right thing to do as a journalist? Sometimes they're not so much different. Yeah, definitely a commitment to pursuing the truth wherever it leads and the humility of putting the truth before yourself and your ego. And I like that you you mentioned like 
when you make a mistake, you fix it with prominence and alacrity. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you grow up? What did your folks do? Do you feel like that influenced you? I grew up initially in Boston and then in Denver. And I think what influenced me is fortunately, right, I was pretty lucky in that, you know, my parents they didn't really impose, you know, views on me or preconditions about my career and whatnot. And I think that that kind of let me come into this profession. Mm. Um, you know, my father is a physician. Uh, my mother has done various consulting and taught a community college for, for a long time. And hopefully, right, for our son, I mean, <laughs> I think he doesn't hear me say this, but I kind of hope he picks a profession other than journalism. And he shows all signs on his own of, of wanting to do that. But, you know, you have a, a son now, you know, when, when he's going to grow up you got to let them do what's, what's going to be best for them. And it's like, all you hope is that they're right, happy and healthy. Yeah. And that's, that's what's great with kids is they're really kind of unbound and unbridled. And uh, what's good about being a journalist is you're not really in anyone's pocket. You're not really paid to advocate anyone's point of view. So it also can be liberating because you don't have to have any view other than let's find out what's happening. Let's do the reporting, talk to the people, read the documents. I love that. Yeah. I'm, I, it's funny. As a you know, journalist, right, we also cover things like um, cybersecurity and privacy and even government surveillance. Yeah. And, uh, you yeah, know, those are very important issues. And they, they come up from, from time to time in you know, like the mainstream press. People think about like Edward Snowden and, and things like that. But one thing just personally is I'm, I try to be pretty aggressive about my own privacy and that of my family, because as you know, it's like once you give up any piece of information about yourself in the commercial sphere or in like the, you know, if the government gets it or what have you, it, it, it's like you can't unwind it. So that information, it might be out there forever and it gets, you know, populated in lots of different databases. Yeah, um, and, honestly, yeah. I'm like always curious to hear what parents have to say about like kids on social media um but especially you uh given your work so like when julius was born we were we you know we talked about it a little bit and then we were just like you know honestly i feel like everything about us is already known to anyone who really <laughs> really wants to find it out and julius is all over my social media as a result <laughs> like we're just totally resigned honestly maybe that's stupid though like how did how did you go about making um your decisions around that and like and like and what both around like your social media presence and your child and also how you will let him move into his own social media question as someone who covers the business of social media yeah well look those are important questions for all parents I think what you do, Rabbi Hannah, I was laughing just because it's what most parents do. It's very much in the mainstream. You know, the default for most people when it comes to privacy is, look, our lives are complicated. And even, you know, apart from these very serious times that we're in, we don't have a lot of bandwidth to devote to thinking about that sort of thing. You know, for me, I would say we're very conservative. We're, we're very conservative about how much we expose to him. And, and expose him to the world. My thought is, you know, when they become full-fledged adults, you know, no longer, or no longer contributing to their, you know, financial or, or other well-being, yeah, what they do, that's up to them. You know, their, if you will, social media and, and marketing files, they'll, they'll follow them for the rest of their life. That's up to them. 
Before that, though, we just don't put him on any of that stuff. And when there are options when it comes to school and even like he'll hover on other things, you know, we say, yeah, you know, please don't put him in a newsletter or please don't put him on your social media. But yeah, we, he doesn't have any accounts of his own. We basically don't let him do most anything unsupervised <laughs> because there is a lot of uh, peril out there. And I think one thing that's really important for, I mean, as soon as kids start interacting with other kids on social media is bullying, right? Is cyberbullying and just peer bullying and, and peer pressure. Is it hard? Like, is he pushing for more access and more independence? And like, how do you navigate that pushback? I mean, like, obviously your kid is always going to want something you don't want them to have. I mean, like I live that every second of every day that I spend with my child. But um, for this one, especially as he gets older, how do you navigate that? I think with this, with privacy, he, for good or bad, has kind of adopted our mindset about it. Um, So even though, as as you know, our son, very independent, he's going to make his own choices even now uh, as a sixth grader. But yeah, I think he's mostly on board. What he would like is to have lots of devices. Not to put himself out there to the world, but to take in media himself. Oh, well, both, both, right? He's done a Mm -hmm. number of different like school and group things where they're creating stuff for YouTube and whatnot. The good part is when that happens, again, there's an adult involved. And we've talked about it, but in our estimation, we don't think he's ready and we're not sure when he will be ready just because we have such a high bar and a high threshold. The other thing, and I, I see like- I'm responsible enough for my own social media accounts, so I totally feel that. I'm like, I'm yeah. like am, I, am I responsible enough to like stop posting on social media when I'm tired in the evening? Like that's a big, so yeah, no, no doubt. You know, just think about it like impaired driving or anything else like that. I mean, I mean this very, very sincerely. Nothing is ever gained by rushing out and doing something, yeah. right? When you're upset, when you're angry, one thing we say in the newsroom is, you know, we encounter lots of challenges in, in doing our job and lots of gatekeepers and people, people are basically trying to obstruct us. Hmm. But th- that's, you know, your spouse, your friend, your significant other, your editor, your colleague, that's who you express it to. You don't necessarily want to go out immediately and shout about it. That's when there can be bad judgment. Yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. This was great. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So we're now going to hear from a Hill Haveran member who has been very vocal. She has been a regular participant in the recent protests. I'm Catherine Sherman. I'm a rising senior at Washington Latin Public Charter School. And the first Friday that they started having protests, there was one at 5 p.m. Um, that started at 14th in U. And it was pretty small at first, but I decided to go with my brother and my mom. Was that a difficult decision um, for you? Or was it like as soon as you heard it was happening, you were there? It was a bit difficult because I definitely wanted to be there to support the cause, but it was also, you have to, I had to consider the, the danger in going, considering the pandemic, even though people are going to try to social distance and most people were wearing masks, it still is sort of hard when you're standing in a big group like that. Yeah, so tell us why you're protesting. I'm protesting because I think that the, issue of police brutality and just 
institutionalized racism has just been obviously been going on for far too long and so many innocent people have been killed at the hands of the police and I just think that it's important for everyone to come together and I think especially as white people it's important to use the privilege that I unfairly have because of the color of my skin to join with those who may not have that same privilege and to stand in solidarity with an important cause. Yeah. Like, are there ways in which your, your Judaism, the way your family has talked about Judaism or your Jewish education have entered into, into your, into your protesting and you're thinking about this issue? I mean, I guess so. This is kind of a more broad reason, but a lot, you know, that we talk about um, just overall for our, for our community. And I guess just in my experiences as um, a Jewish person is, I think a lot of emphasis is placed on unity, whether it's unity in the congregation or unity within your family or unity just within the communities surrounding you. I think that, again, that's a really broad one, but I think definitely that played into it because unity is more important than ever in a time like this, both with the pandemic that's like crippling the nation as well as the injustices that, you know, everyone in the nation needs to face together because it's not, it's not just the fight of, of one group. Have your, have your relationships with your African-American classmates like, or, or things you've heard them say affected your thinking about this issue and your, you know, your motivation to protest? Um, I guess something that I've heard some of my, friends that are people of color say is that if they say all white people are racist and they say it in a joking way but I think that it is important to acknowledge the fact that everyone has subconscious prejudices and frankly probably is racist in a subconscious way just because of the way that people were raised in the way that people have these like biases that they don't even know that they have then they people can say that as a joke I think it is important to reflect on your behaviors and try and unlearn those those biases. Again, well put, yeah. Um, Is there like a, a memory that you could share of the, of the protest that like you feel like you're going to be able to like see in your mind decades from now? Yeah, actually, a couple of days ago, I was at a protest at the Capitol in the side facing the Washington Monument and it was fairly small, but we were all kind of in this like pathway area and the police were standing at the front guarding a gate and someone was going to the list of the victims of police brutality and we were saying their names and and then they paused and um, this girl came up who was like around my age and the leader of the protest started saying, you know, this girl has a personal connection to this. Like in 2014, her father was killed by the police. So then we started saying his name and we just said it over and over and over again. And it was just a very powerful moment and, and different for me because I've, I've seen, you know, I've seen like videos of family members who have been affected by police brutality, but something about seeing a girl my age, you know, standing up there, like leading the chant with her and her father died like six years ago or something was just very powerful. I think I will remember that for a long time. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. That was Hill Havara member Catherine Sherman. 
a rising senior at Washington Latin Public Charter School here in DC. And if you're listening, we will talk to you next week. Oh, gosh.